0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. The extreme weather has been a major news story in our area over the past couple of months. We've had a very dry spring, followed by a very wet and hot summer. What effect have those big swings had on the plants of those of us who like to grow things? Well, joining us now with some tips for how to deal with this complicated situation is Pete Murawski, a nursery man and environmentalist and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, uh, and also a regular contributor to our show. And we invite you to call us now with your gardening questions. Our on-air number is 212-209-209. Two eight seven seven. That's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Well, hi, Leonard, and it's always a pleasure to be back. Uh, has the dry spring followed by a very wet summer caused some plants to be confused?
1: Oh, very much so, Leonard. I mean, if you look at the weather over the last two weeks, we've had over 10 inches of rain and it's been fairly cool it's almost like spring and summer has switched roles again where this spring was very dry and very warm and some of the things i noticed in the garden were like my peach trees you know uh, when it got hot and dry over the spring they started dropping peaches now the reason Hmm. they did that is because peaches adapt to the warm weather in the summertime but if you hit the warm weather in the spring uh, they're not accustomed to that and the and the tree gets a little messed up and it and it, and it drops uh, the fruit now if, if if you look at the weather over the past year it was a very wet and snowy winter and then last summer if you remember it was a very dry summer and uh, we had uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, just dry humid air. And what kicked us out of this, this dry uh, summer was uh, a hurricane that we had uh, back in August. But, you know, it's, it's, it's these extremes in weather that are doing a job on our plants. And, uh, you know, we've had a gradual weather change over the past four or five decades, which plants can tolerate, but it's these extremes in weather, which they don't like.
0: And there's been some serious flooding in parts of our area. Does that just drown the plants?
1: Well, it does and it doesn't, and it all depends on your type of soil. Uh, If you've got very heavy soils, if you've got very clay soils, yes, your plants are going to go through some trouble. And if you've got sandy soils like out on Long Island, you know, a a lot of it drains out fairly quickly. But one of the big problems, too, when we get these very humid, wet scenarios is fungus, Uh, mold, uh, a, a lot of powdery mildew. I'm, I'm noticing a lot of that on, on a lot of the plants. And, you know, it, you can spray plants with fungicide all day and all night. But until we get rid of this dry, humid, uh, hot, uh, wet, humid weather, uh, these funguses are going to hang out for a while.
0: Is this the sort of thing we may have to expect and live with in the future as a result of climate change?
1: I think it is, and especially the extremes in weather. Uh, they... <laughs> like i said before plants don't like these these up and down extremes Oops, hope they, they like a they like a very very slow change in weather and 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 we can expect more of this in the in the near future
0: are your customers at your garden center asking you different kinds of questions than they have in the past
1: uh they are you know they're wondering what's going on and and how they can take care of a lot of these plants And a lot of these stressed plants that they're seeing, you know, Uh, you got to remember that when plants uh, have wet soils, they tend to do this, have the same kind of problems or look the same as if they had dry soil. So I get a lot of calls and I said, you know, I'm watering my plants, but they still look like they're suffering uh, from dry conditions. And I said, well, put your finger in the soil. It's probably the opposite. You're probably getting too much rain and the plants are suffering from, you know, bogged out soils.
0: Now, should I assume that the weather has little impact on indoor gardeners?
1: Well, when the humidity's up, the humidity's also up inside homes. Uh, you know, you don't have to mist plants as much in during this hot, humid weather, especially if if you're leaving windows open. But you know, that insects uh, uh, are on the rise too when a lot of this hot, humid weather. A lot of the mites, a lot of the aphids. You you run into a lot of problems with them during this hot, humid weather also because bugs are just uh, reproducing like crazy.
0: Well, pest control companies advertise that they can rid your property of mosquitoes and ticks and the other bugs, but does that also kill pollinators we're trying to encourage like the butterflies, the, the bees, ladybugs and ants?
1: It does, Leonard. And as you know, I'm not a big fan of spraying insecticides or pesticides on a property. And what uh, do we do about we, the
0: ticks and the mosquitoes?
1: Well, you know, what you do is, you know, pruning uh, proper cultural practices and bringing in native plants will help with a lot of this stuff. You know, if, if you've got a very bushy type landscape, if you do a little bit of pruning and you let some air into these plants, that'll that'll get rid of a lot of the uh, problems we're having with insects and funguses out there.
0: A reminder to our listeners, if you would like to ask Pete any questions, uh, our on-air number is 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Has the weather had a positive effect on, on some plants, like berries, well, any, for example?
1: Yes. Uh, any plants, like for instance, because we had a, we had a dry summer last year followed by a wet winter, Uh, Many of our spring flowering trees and shrubs had some of the best flower shows I've ever seen. And now we're getting into summer, and it's a banner year uh, for fruiting uh, berries and and trees. Blueberries were some of the biggest fruits I've seen in years. Strawberries were very good. Uh, A lot of the canes. and, And many of the fruit trees, a lot of the apples, pears, and nectarines Uh, enjoy uh, uh, the wet weather and uh, they've been producing a lot of fruits too earlier than usual
2: Uh,
1: about the same time i mean we we did have a warm spring and things started to bolt a little bit in the spring but now that the weather uh this summer is is kind of back to a a little bit more of a a normal temperature uh things are starting to even out and, and i'm starting to see uh, you know, fruits starting to develop uh, in, in in a more positive way. But once again, we got to be careful with um, with a lot of the uh, of funguses and, and and some of the mm. some of the insects. And what you can do if you have a small uh, a fruit grove is go in and, and, and remove a lot of these pests mechanically. You know, rather than going in and spraying with a, a lot of uh, uh, insecticides. You know, go through with your clipper and and a bucket and clip a lot of these problem insects that you have on your plants, and it it goes a long way to keeping your uh, garden much more organic.
0: Does it matter whether the berries are native to our area or not?
1: It does. Um, You know, a lot of our native berries have adapted to a lot of these uh, uh, climate swings, Uh, but, you know, some of the exotic trees like, you know, Uh, You know, apples are not indigenous to this part of the world, and many of our pears and peaches are not. So, you know, sometimes they need a little help in order to get some good fruits and and, and some large, juicy fruits also.
0: Now, on the other hand, isn't, aren't uh, uh, invasive species like, well, an invasive species called the emerald ash bar killing many of our ash trees? Is the heat a factor there?
1: Well, the emerald ash borer is is an interesting story. Uh, You know, many times we bring plants from around the world and and we bring them here to North America. And the problem lies in the fact that, you know, a lot of these trees and shrubs don't have a mechanism or a a defense mechanism to ward off a lot of these pests. You know, uh, hemlock woolly adelgid, uh, the... um, uh, on a lot of these other uh, problems. And an emerald ash borer is a borer that came in from, uh, from China, and um, it came in on crates uh, that, that they made for, uh, you know, shipping stuff. And uh, it basically it started spreading uh, in the Midwest, and now it's killed millions of trees uh, around the Northeast. Now, the problem with the emerald ash borer is that the ash tree is a low-moisture tree, and when the ash tree gets the emerald ash borer it dies fairly quickly and the 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 uh, ash tree tends to lose a lot of branches when it's infected and many of these trees are street trees and you got to be careful when uh walking under these trees because you know in, in windy situations like we've had recently they lose a lot of branches and it can be a dangerous situation under a lot of these dying trees
0: are they some of the trees that I see falling uh, along the road
1: they are uh a lot of trees that you see falling along the road a lot of the trees that you see are street trees um here here in the town I live in uh they they put in a lot of uh, uh ashes and now the ashes are dying and I noticed a lot of tree debris uh falling onto sidewalks and you know that's where you really got to be careful and you got to get out there and you got to cut these trees uh before they uh, they hurt somebody
0: now, the emerald ash borer is a form of beetle, isn't it? It
1: is. It's a uh, it's a green beetle. It's a it's a pretty beetle, and uh, what it does is it gets under the bark of the tree and basically eats the life out of the tree, eats the cambium out of the tree. And the problem is, is it, is it expands rapidly. It like I said, it started in the Midwest and the Dakotas, uh, raged its way up through Canada. And now is doing a job on the on the East Coast. And I've seen a lot of areas uh, like down in New Jersey, up here in the Hudson Valley in Long Island, where um, it's you know, there's very few trees that that are that don't get affected by this beetle. But just about every ash tree, the white ash and the green ash is going to succumb to this uh, borer.
0: Well, they're from northeastern Asia. What about the ash trees in, or are there ash trees in northeastern Asia? Um, do they destroy them as well?
1: Well, they do, but you got to remember this boar has been there for centuries, so the trees have been able to adapt uh, a way of uh, handling this and, and, and creating, you know, <clears throat> so that so that they don't uh, they don't get infected by the boar. Where here in in, uh, in the United States. This is the first time that the ash tree has been uh has seen this insect so and, and is affected by the insect. so they you know they have no natural mechanism to to defend themselves against it and, and and that's what the problem is i mean we saw the same thing happen to elm trees in the turn of the century uh, the american chestnut tree with the chestnut blight hmm. went through the same problem it's you know when we start to bring in uh plants and insects from other parts of the world you know, our trees and shrubs have no defense mechanisms against it.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Pete Morosky, a nurseryman and environmentalist, the owner of Native Landscapes uh, Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And we are taking your calls. Our on-air number is 212-209-2877. So, Pete, let's go to some calls, OK? Sure. BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Yes. Hi. You're on the air.
3: Yes. Hi. I was hoping the guests could please elaborate on why I'm getting so much fruit drop. My nectarine trees, pomegranate, uh, every, fruit is just dropping and it has the ideals of conditions, sun, good soil. I mean, I don't understand this. Almost well, every it's, fruit dropped.
1: Thank it's, you. It's, it has to do with the swings in weather. Um, as I said a little while ago, we had very high temperatures in the spring. Now, if you think about it, you know, fruit trees can handle hot, humid weather in midsummer because they've acclimated to that hot, humid weather. When you hit your fruit trees with hot, humid weather early in the spring, uh, you know, they don't, they can't defend against it because, you know, they haven't had much hot, humid weather to deal with. So, you know, I've had the same problem as you've had, and that is you know, my peaches are dropping, my pears are dropping, and it's definitely a, a, a weather-related scenario. Um, did they drop all the? Wait, fruit wait, wait. Can, can I wait?
0: Can I interrupt fruit? for a second? Can yeah. I interrupt for a second? Now, these are fruit that are have not yet ripened. We're talking about them in very early stages,
1: right? That's right, young right, fruit correct. on yeah. the tree. Now, okay. have, have I'm sorry. your fruit trees dropped all the fruits, or just like half of them?
3: Just about every pome. Uh, it's a Japanese pomegranate.
0: Every single one, but maybe two survived. And there were like at least 100 fruits ready to – they were set, ready to go. And then every one – I can only see like maybe two on the tree now. Every nectarine is gone, hmm. and uh, half the peaches are dropped as well.
1: Well, that's hmm. the tree's defense mechanism against hot, humid weather. You know, the tree senses it's hot. You know, it it it, 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 it thinks that it's going to be hot for the rest of the summer – and it drops the fruit because it'll sustain the trees. You know, a lot of energy goes into producing fruit in a tree. And if you let if you keep that fruit on the tree, the, the, you know, the tree senses that it, it, it may succumb or it might get weak. By dropping the fruit, it takes all that energy back into the leaves mm. and helps sustain it through. Uh, Is there you anything know, I can rest do about summer. it? Well, not really. I mean, the the damage is already done. And I guess, you know, just, you know, maybe, you know, what you can do is you can cool the tree down. Whenever we get really hot weather, you know, miss the tree, you know, give it a cool shower and that'll help it, uh, that'll help it acclimate to the hot weather. And, you know, maybe if we all did that in the early spring, that may have helped, but, you know, keep that in mind for the next spring. If we have another hot, dry spring, mist it during these hot, this hot, dry weather, and that'll okay. help it.
3: Uh,
0: but uh, too late now.
3: Stressful oh, period. Okay. Now Thank now you it's, so much. It's, it's, it, I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: You wanted to finish your thought, Pete. Now it's too late.
1: It is. It's basically too late. I mean, if mm-hmm. your tree is still holding fruits now, then uh, to keep misting it to, in, in, in hopes that those Fruits will mature uh, and become uh, edible fruit uh, in the next month or so.
0: We are taking listener calls. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air.
3: Mr. Lopate, how are you?
0: I am well. I hope you are, too.
3: (laughs) Great show yesterday on Sarah Klein.
0: Yeah, uh, thanks.
3: I, 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 I was in the infamous Coney Island yesterday. And back in 87, I went there for the first time at 10 years old. And I didn't understand global warming. You know, we, we're kids. We know nothing about global warming. And when I went there, I realized, I said to myself, oh, my God, if a tsunami hits, God forbid, that area, that whole area is going to be washed away. I live in Parkchester, in the Bronx. It's actually um, it's a series of, con- series of condominiums off Metropolitan Avenue on the 6th line, the IRT 6th line. They were built in the 30s. And we have so many trees. These trees are almost as tall as some of the buildings. We have six-story, seven-story buildings and 12-story buildings. These trees, are, I'm looking out the window right now, these we have some trees that are almost as tall as the uh, smallest buildings. We also have four quadrants, which have parks and benches, they're circular. And there are trees all around. And they are so tall, uh, Mr. Lopez. That I get scared because the ground is buckling up. Those trees hmm. are clearly on a path to being toppled over when we get hmm. to the next storm, the next hurricane. Luckily, for some reason, after Sandy. And trees have been tree toppling over in the area. Yeah, not one tree came <laughs> down after Sandy. And Sandy, those winds were fierce. Hmm.
1: Everything well, one of the, in the, in one of the, the things you want to do if you've got big trees on your property is go – is have a real good pruning program. Um, if trees are left to vegetate and become a dense green canopy, uh, the wind is not able to get through them, and that's when the wind takes them down and and knocks them over. If you've got a good tree program where you've where you got arborists going in there on a once-every-couple-year basis – the wind is able to go through the trees, and you don't have much tree damage. You know, it's it, it, that's how it works. And as long as these roots are firmly in place, uh, you really have nothing to worry about. Now, you mentioned a little bit about Coney Island, that you feel that uh, Coney Island is, is, is vulnerable to a, another hurricane here, um, you know, this fall. But one of the things I think New York City is doing, and a lot of these coastal communities are doing... Is creating sand dunes uh, in in and around the uh, you know the, the beach areas with, with, with grasses, and I think that's going a long way to preserving uh, a, a lot of the beaches and, and and helping with with floodwaters. I mean, you look on eastern Long Island out in Fire Island, you know the reason why uh, southern Long Island doesn't get hit real hard with hurricanes is because you've got that barrier island um, of, of Fire Island, and it's loaded with vegetation and and that just absorbs a lot of the wave impact before it hits the south shore of long island you mimic that in a lot of these uh, shore communities and you're going to find a lot less wind damage and 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 storm surge so storm surge damage
0: now should i assume that some of the trees near the caller are ash trees or hemlocks endangered trees? And if that's the case, how would he spot that? And would uh, somebody have to come and cut them down before these East Asian insects destroy them?
1: Well, uh, yeah, it would. It would be good to know the type of trees that he's talking about. Like you said, um, if they're ash trees, then they should be basically cut to the ground. And a lot of I'm getting a lot of phone calls right now that you know, a lot of my ash trees are dying, what should we replace them with? And I think one of the, 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 one of the better trees uh, for street trees and, and park trees are the uh, honey locust. You know, the locust has a very small leaf. Uh, the wind is able to uh, uh, whip through them without creating too much um, uh, branch damage or structural damage to the tree. And uh, you know the locust trees have a, a very good rooting system. So what I would do is I would, um, you know, ID the trees, and then you know, if, if they look like they're going to fall or 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 if they're starting to list a little bit, you know, contact the parks department and, and 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 tell them, and maybe they can get a crew out there to either take the tree down or prune it so that it's uh, less of a problem.
0: Okay, caller. I guess the caller has left, uh, a reminder that our on-air number is 212-209-2877. If you want to speak to Pete Moroski about uh, plants and related matters. Um, hasn't it been predicted that if the human impact on the environment continues as it is, uh, one-third of all bird species and even a greater proportion of bird populations will be gone by the end of the century? It is, Leonard.
1: And this brings us back to this whole native plant concept. You know, you got to we all got to understand the symbiotic relation that exists between plants, animals and insects. And if we keep cutting down or eradicating many of our native plant colonies, then a lot that then what we're doing is we're starving our bird species. Uh, What we need to do is whenever, you know, whenever we're creating a subdivision or whenever a. Uh, you know uh, we're, we're having to cut down a lot of vegetation it's really important to bring back native plants because you know they feed a lot of our uh, a, a lot of our bird species and i know we talked about this before the great twig dogwood uh cornice has this little berry uh you know in the fall i, I see they're starting to come out now and these these, these berries are so loaded with protein that uh, it sustains a lot of our insects and a lot of our birds now, if you replace, of course, with, you,
0: if you want to have the the berries yourself, you have to compete with the birds. The birds always seem to get there before you do.
1: Yeah. But, you know, leave them for the birds. They need it more than we do <laughs> in most situations. <clears throat> but, you know, you know what, what we're doing is we're replacing a lot of these uh, shrubs with barberry and euonymus. And, you know, mm. the birds haven't really adapted to these shrubs and they're having a tough time digesting these shrubs and they're not getting the nutritional value they get from a lot of our native shrubs. So and, and I, I think in the long run, that's that's the problem that that we have. I mean, Norway maples, you know, they you know, they don't sustain anything where the sugar maple does. The oaks, uh, you know, the oaks are one of the most important species of trees in the woods. You know, the white oak. As uh, your friend and mine, Douglas Tellamy, tells us in his most recent book, *The Nature of Oaks*, you know uh, the white oak sustains 230 different animals and insects. So if we're gonna re- if we're gonna plant something and, and we're gonna replace something or a tree or a shrub that's died on our property, go with plants that have a, are native and that will feed the natural environment and and maybe we can. We can change this curve and, 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 and bring back a lot of our uh, native uh, birds so that they're not on the verge of extinction.
0: Let's uh, take another call. BAI, you're on the air.
3: Hello, how are you?
0: Yeah, hi. Uh,
3: this, is, uh, I, this is Mike. I live in uh, central Jersey. And I had okay. a question about butterflies or preserving butterflies. Something called milkweed.
1: Yes. Yes. The um, species, yeah.
3: yes. Yeah, I, I bought like a, what they call a butterfly bush. I don't know if it's the same thing. It looks like it might be milkweeds. Um, when you when you plant it, do they need like a lot of, um, more than at least five
1: hours of sunlight? Or They do, but if, if you bought what's called a butterfly bush, it's called buddleia which is not a native okay. species. It's, um, okay. you know, the, the butterflies are, are attracted to it, but it's not really giving them nutritional value. You know, I was okay. just down okay. in central New Jersey uh, just last weekend, and uh, I had someone approach me, he, you know, it was a very rural area, and he had a, a, a meadow behind his house, and, you know, his question to me was, you know, what can I plant in this meadow that's going to Give me, or, or 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 more ecologically significant than uh, just you know any run in the mill shrubs and plants. And one of the things I suggested to him was, you know, mow the meadow down, and this fall, plant you know native wildflower seeds. Spread native wildflower seeds in this meadow. Eventually, you know, all this native, all these native plants will grow up, and not only will you be. Uh, saving a lot of the butterflies and hummingbirds uh, and caterpillars uh, that that live in your neighborhood, uh, but you'll you'll also have a beautiful garden and it, it's kind of a quality of life thing. You look out your window and all these beautiful plant plants will bring in all these wonderful uh, hummingbirds and butterflies. And not only are you doing your thing to keep these things alive, but you can also look out your window and and, and really enjoy their presence.
0: Now, yeah, that's can he was, buy that's can he doing. buy grown milkweed and plant it now? to absolutely uh, and, and bring and butterflies that, to his his house, that, his area?
1: Yeah, that's yes. what i was
3: looking for. Where can I get that? Cuz when I bought you the butterfly do, bush, I thought that was local, but it's not. I mean, it's not local
1: uh to the environment uh, in this area. Well, you know you what you do? You can buy at
0: any store, can't you? Any Well, you can center? buy it
1: at, you know, most garden centers. It's like I said, it's the Asclepias species. Um, you know, and there's about four or five different type of, of milkweed plants. And you can even go online and, and buy the seeds and, and, and spread them out yourself. And next year, you, you, you'll you have a milkweed garden. You know, there's, oh, great. you know, yeah, we, we sell the seeds here at Native Landscapes and Garden Center. If you email me at Pete at NativeLandscaping.net, I can send you a list uh, of, okay. of, of local garden centers that sell this stuff. But, you know, start oh, calling around and ask them who – ask them if they have, uh, you know, butterfly uh, uh, perennials and, and Asclepias perennials. And you'll great. be surprised. Uh, they're out there. Okay. But stay away from them- the uh, butterfly weed because that's really not doing much uh, for the – Yes,
3: uh, I wasn't sure because of the name. I want to get – I want to buy local plants hmm. that's local to the area. So – and what's your website again or your email?
1: It's uh, Pete at net.
3: Okay. Okay. I appreciate it. And I can you, send you some Great seeds.
1: Show. You give me your mailing address. I can I can send you some seeds of of all kinds of uh, pollinator type uh, flowers that uh, you can spread in your garden. And um, you know, the, and this is coming into the time of year, uh, like mid August through mid September, where you know it's it's really the best time of year to uh, to spread a lot of these uh, native uh, uh, seeds. Oh, sure. Thank, Thank you for that. your I really call. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Uh, it, this is—it's really time for a break, but I'm going to try to sneak another call in. Okay, BAI, you're on the air.
4: Hi, Leonard. Uh, yeah, hi. Name is Don. Hi, Don. So, okay, yeah, I just had a question for Pete. Great show, Pete. Um, Thank you. I have bought about. Pete knows his stuff, ago, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I have. I bought some property upstate <laughs> by uh, Newports, at uh, ten acres or so. And I had a lot of our mulberries on the property, which I enjoyed for about first five, six years. And lately, in the past, maybe seven, eight years, I've noticed this. uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a a rust, not rust, it's um, grayish-white, kind of like mold or fungus on my mulberry trees. And the trees are about, I guess, 20 years old or so.
3: Right.
4: And it seems to be pervading all around the branches and bark. I've sprayed some soapy solutions. Try and get rid of it. I was thinking about even power spraying one of the other trees to remove it. Here's the funny part: it literally likes rocks, also, on some of the rocks, and it even sits on my um, all over my van. I have a white Dodge van, and that's all over it also. So it's a weird fun. I don't know if it's a fungus or. or It's pretty prevalent. The next one is uh, I have a lot of poison ivy also around the property. It seems to be growing up my uh, little evergreens. So any suggestions on that too, besides getting like uh, goats on to eat the uh, poison ivy?
1: Yeah, let's talk about uh, the problem you're having with the mulberries first. It's definitely a fungus. And that can probably be alleviated by proper cultural practices. Once again, opening up the canopy of the tree so you can get the air inside the tree because the fungus grows in a very, you know, confined environment. But if you open up the tree and let the air flow through the tree, nine out of ten times, uh, the fungus will be gone. And, you know, don't be afraid to prune that tree every once in a while. Get yourself a pole pruner and get out there and, and bring that tree back to scale and you'll find that the tree will be a lot healthier um, uh, in the future. Poison um, ivy. Now let's talk about poison ivy a little bit. Believe it or not, poison ivy is a native. and Many of the migrating birds uh, love the berries of poison ivy, so it's okay to keep the poison ivy in the woods when you're not going to brush up against it. But where uh, where you might get the rash, and and, and where it's growing in okay. your um, on your trees, try to find. Uh, where the the poison ivy vine is coming out of the ground, and cut oh, it right doing. there. You oh. know, just cut it right there. But don't touch, don't touch the, uh, <laughs> the vine touch until it dries out, and that's when you can, that's when you can uh, get rid of it. And, and we can and wear gloves, you can't you? Without use gloves, you... long sleeve shirts, masks, goggles. I mean, you know, the best thing to do is get in there with, uh, you know, to cover at the, the root. all your skin so that you, you don't get it you don't get it on your skin. Now another thing you got to think about is too is poison ivy takes three hours to uh, react with your skin. So when you're done ripping out that poison ivy, put that uh, put put those clothes right in the washer and jump right into the shower and may yeah. you may save yourself from that very itchy rash.
4: Yeah okay but uh, are there any native species that can go against the um, I mean prevent the growth of the ivy?
1: Well, whenever you see poison ivy growing, also Virginia creeper is growing in the same area. And the difference Mm. between poison ivy and Virginia creeper is poison ivy is three-leaf. Virginia creeper is five-leaf. So leave the five-leaf, cut out the three-leaf. Okay. Thank you
0: for your call. Thank
1: you, Larry.
0: And you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org.
1: Gonna cut a single blade of grass My garden will look just like the distant past Before the days of agricultural land Before the time when the pebbles turn to sand. When I leave this house, I'm gonna we're
0: back with Pete Morosky, who is a nurseryman and environmentalist and the owner of Native Landscape Gardening Center in Pauling, New York. That's in Dutchess County. We are taking your calls at 212 209 2877. Pete, I want to ask you about something else that I've heard about recently. You know, we're thinking about the pandemic in terms of the coronavirus, but. Aren't the white-tailed deer going through something of a, a pandemic? What's the story there?
1: Uh, they are, Leonard. Um, it's uh, it's the biting midge disease, the EHD, or the no biting gnats. You know, the no biting gnats come out in the fall, and they have this uh, in, in infection now that they're passing on to the deer, and it's you know, uh, up in Dutchess County, Ulster County, Orange County, Putnam, Rockland, Westchester and green counties, it's become a real problem. And uh, they're basically, you know, they're basically killing uh, many of the herd uh, and, 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 and a lot of the deer, Um, you know, the pandemic started in the South and it's been uh, going on down there for a long time. And now it's working its way North and where it started in the South. You know, the deer are starting to, to get immune to the pandemic, uh, but um, it, 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 it's, it, it affects the deer. Uh, you know, it gives them a high fever. Uh, they get dehydrated and sick, and they're dead uh, within one to three days. Uh, you oh, know, they term. tend to rush toward water when they get sick and, and drink and, and then die. Um, <clears throat> like I said, in the northeast, it's been a sporadic outbreak, but it seems to be all over the place now. Um, You know, I get a lot of questions from hunters, and that is, you know, if I shoot a deer that has the EHD disease uh, or the uh, the biting midge disease, you know, can I eat the deer? And, you know, I say, you know, if if it's obviously sick, then, you know, then you don't want to ingest it. It's not it doesn't affect us or human beings. Uh, You know, it's only, uh, you know, it affects deer, I'm told, and elk and, and, and moose. Um, but it's really, uh, it's, it's really going through the deer herd up by us. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, it's a horrible thing for the deer, um, but it's a great thing for our gardens because, you know, we don't have half the herd out there uh, munching on our, 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 de- our, our plants. So, you know, it's something that's, that's, that's coming through right now. And, you know, like the South, I think our, uh, our, our deer herd will, will become immune to it in time. But until it does, um, it, it really is uh, killing a lot of deer.
0: You say there's a rather interesting story to tell about the fawns this time of year.
1: There is, you know. This is the time of year where the fawns are uh, are being born. And, um, you know, when the fawns are born, you know, uh, the, the mother or the doe leaves the fawns in, in an area all day where uh, they feel is a safe spot so that they're not going to be found uh, by either, um, you know, the, the coyotes or, 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 the, or the bear or, 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 or the bobcat. And, and the interesting thing about the fawns is they have no scent. I mean, they can lay still in the middle of a field, and these animals can walk within feet of these, of, of these deer and not detect them. And then what happens is uh, mom comes in, uh, you know, uh, every four or five hours and, and, and nurses the deer. And they do this because you know, after about two or three weeks, the deer are strong enough and fast enough to outrun a lot of these predators. But you know, when they're when they're young, um, it's it's you know it, it's it's a natural instinct for them to uh, to just to lay still as 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 these animals are going by. And one of the things you know, I get talking about the farmers up here who do a lot of hang this time of year, and I ask him, I said, are you seeing a lot of a deer um as you're haying the field and it's funny because one guy sent me a picture of you know three fawns in the in the tractor cab with him that he had saved from being run over uh by the brush hog that you know he's gonna let loose out in the field after he's done mowing the field so you know it's 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 an interesting natural occurrence that happens this time of year where you know the fawns are laying still in the field We're mowing the field, but a lot of these farmers over the generation are accustomed to this. And they're out there saving the deer, uh, you know, because they're trying to keep the deer herd going, too. Our number is
0: 212-209-2877 if you want to speak to Pete Murawski. And let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air.
2: Thank you. Hello?
0: Yes, you're on the air. Okay, I'm in. Thank you so very much. (laughs) The
2: program, very interesting. I have uh, three questions. The first is, I know that uh, pecans grow on very tall trees, but pistachios, do they grow on trees or bush? That's the first question. The second is I have a very tall pine tree, and I noted that uh, I cut the lower branches and there's sap that's coming out. And then I thought, can I tap the sap, you know, for pine oil? And the last question is, I being conscious, I no longer take my garbage and put it out for collection. I've dug a hole in my backyard and I've put all the eggshells and vegetable, you know uh, cuttings and uh, things like that, fruits except for seeds in the hole to make compost I, th- I throw it in and I uh, I wait some time and then I throw dirt over it now is there a lime I was told that I should add some lime would that help
1: well what the lime does is, is it helps with the pH when 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 uh, when plants decompose they create an acidic environment and you want to try to keep as neutral uh, an environment as you can when it comes to um, when it comes to uh, creating compost. Uh, well, what are so the
0: best things the... to
1: compost?
0: Because, uh, you know, there are, I'm sure there are things that are bad. And also, uh, it, uh, we're, we're, although we're keeping these the materials out of landfills, where they take up space and, and release methane, uh, we are putting old garbage around our house or in our house, which sounds to me to be a bit unsanitary. Well, the garbage no has got meat,
2: just vegetables. I don't ah. eat meat.
1: Ah. Right.
2: So it's just the veg- vegetables.
1: Yeah, the you vegetables know, like, are A. okay. And you want to really so, uh, make sure uh, they uh, become soil. At the
2: bottom of it. Things like that. If I peel an apple to make an apple pie, the skin from the hmm. apple, bananas, plantains, Right. Sounds uh, good. Lettuce, romaine lettuce. The you know the bottom part. You don't eat everything. You just eat the leaves. So it's uh, meatless uh, garbage.
0: Now, would this apply to indoor plants as well, Pete, or is
1: it? It can. It It all depends on the type of indoor plants you have. But I would mostly stay with, um, like she said, shells, uh, broccoli. um, uh, You know, lettuce. Any kind of vegetable type plants and the important thing here is to let them decompose totally before you put them out in your garden or you'll wind up getting a lot of worms and because the, the compost is still working. So you know the thing is is you know turn it uh, every once in a while you know get in there with the pitchfork if you don't if you don't have it in a bin and turn it and let the air get to it so that it decomposes much more quickly. Um, now, your next question was about sap, pine sap. Yes, from pine, pine sap tree. and pistachios. Yeah, pine sap is a <clears throat> pine sap is the is a, is a natural tree. Is the tree trying to seal the wound that you just cut and and it's bleeding yeah. and then it'll it'll eventually seal itself and, and and especially if it's a white pine, they tend to drip that sap if you prune them this time of year and it gets a little messy. So, you know, that's why we recommend pruning many pine trees when they're dormant or in the wintertime, because they tend yeah. to produce less sap that time of year, because you get that sap on your um, on your skin, it's, you know, you got to use uh, gasoline to get it off a lot of times. Oh, boy. It, yeah, you don't want to wow. get it in your okay. hair either. Um, but pistachios, I'm not that familiar with as far as the compost. It sounds like it's a good compost, and I, I believe pistachios grow on a a vine maybe um i I, I don't know much about the pistachios but the pistachio shell is a great compost
2: oh that's great because i've been saving all the shells and i said well because i love pistachio they're very healthy for you but uh i thank you for giving me the information so now i know that's something that i should uh add you know to my uh whole and uh, because out here I'm on Long Island and uh, you know we are uh, becoming very conscious because of the amount of garbage uh, that is being collected and no place to dump it and we are also starting our own home gardens you know uh, uh, raising even our library has uh, a program for the children to learn about uh, 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 basically growing herbs and various plants, uh, uh, zucchinis and plantains and watermelon with seeds. you know things like that so it's a healthy environment and I figure hey you're getting organic food it's natural because we're not using any pesticides or anything like that Uh, and uh, you're also saving uh, uh, the environment from uh, you know the amount of garbage that's collected from the house so for those who are carnivorous (laughs) if they eat meat well hey you got your bones and stuff to deal with but uh, for those who are, who lean more towards a uh, vegetarian uh, diet, it's healthy.
1: I think it's great okay. that you're that you have programs for young kids and I think it should be in every curriculum to teach kids not only how to grow vegetables and fruit trees and plants and be more sustainable but also do it in an organic way um, and I think it should be in, in the curriculum of every school I know I started it up here many years ago with the Pauling Elementary School and we had a victory garden out there and it, it, it's you know it, the kids really enjoyed getting out there and planting the seeds and two weeks later they're sprouting and a month later, they're a foot high. And two months later, they're producing, you know, uh, fruits and vegetables. It's just it's a very rewarding thing for young children and something that they all should be learning about. Thank you so much for your call.
0: My guest is Pete Marosky, uh who is the owner of Native Landscapes Garden Center in Pauling, in New York. I don't are we getting any more calls, Reggie? Oh, we have another caller. Okay, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Let's put that other caller on the air. Hi.
4: Oh, hi. I'm, I'm curious about the prognosis for tomatoes this year, especially talking about the fungus and all.
1: Right. Uh, so far, you know, I just uh, was out in the garden looking at tomatoes uh, a couple days ago, and you got to remember, tomatoes love dry, hot weather. And they were doing so good up until about two weeks ago when we got all the rain. And now they're, um, you know, they're still doing good. And I think this hot, dry weather has come back just in time. You know, this is the time of year where you can prune tomatoes a little bit. I mean, they're all flowering now. Some of the tomatoes are about, you know, the size of a quarter. And, and, and they're they're getting there. And as soon as they get some sun, they're going to be fine. You got to remember, too, that. Many fruiting vegetables and and, and, and fruits uh, love uh, the sun. And they it, what what makes, uh, like my blueberries, I was out there uh, chomping on some of my blueberries uh, this morning, and, you know, they're about the size of a dime, which are humongous this time of year. But they're, you know, because we, we started getting a little sun, they're starting to get very sweet. So, you know, as, as these fruits start to ripen on the vine, you know, Pick them just as um, you know, just as they're getting you know ripe, and and then hopefully uh, they're getting ripe just uh, two or three days after a couple of uh, hot sunny days, and you know that's what's going to make them really sweet. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome,
0: Pete. I wanted to talk about something uh, that's near to you. The Appalachian Trail, the longest national park in the world, goes through where your garden center is located. Should I assume that the pandemic has meant that fewer people have been walking by over the past year and a half?
1: Yes. It, yes, Leonard. You can't assume that. Uh, last year, um, you know, <clears throat> the, the Appalachian Trail was not closed, uh, but the support mechanisms available for the Appalachian Trail were not in place. So, um, you know, and, and the National Park Service and National Park Service recommend not hiking the Appalachian Trail last year. But it's now open, I'm starting to get emails saying that, you know, wondering, you know, where we stand through this whole thing. And, you know, here at Native Landscapes, we are the Harlem Valley, we are the base camp for the Harlem Valley Appalachian Trail community. Uh, the, the Appalachian Trail goes through the garden center. Uh, you know, we are a mail drop for many of the hikers. In fact, this year I installed a shower behind the building so that they can take outdoor showers. You know, the only thing I ask is they don't walk around my garden center naked. And then there's, there's also, also a train uh, station right next, right, uh, right there, isn't there? There is. There's the Appalachian Trail train station, which has the only, uh, which is the only train station on the Appalachian Trail, and it stops three times on Saturday and three times on Sunday. So anybody out there who doesn't have a car can jump on the train at Grand Central Station and come up, check the schedule, and come to and come right to the Appalachian Trail, and you know, bring your backpack, bring your sleeping bag. And hang out in the woods for a couple of days, and take the train back on Sunday. Um, we, you know, I'll give you a little uh, history of the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail, like you said, Leonard, uh, you know, is is comes through the Garden Center. It's twenty one hundred miles long, you know. And the neat part about the Appalachian Trail is that you know it began here in New York. The first section of the Appalachian Trail was put in in Bear Mountain, New York. Now, I don't know if you ever been to Bear Mountain, but what a beautiful spot that is. I mean, mm-hmm. they just redid the lodge over at Bear Mountain. Uh, they put a beautiful set of granite steps, all done by volunteers uh, through the Appalachian Trail. You know, uh, the, the, the Bear Mountain has a beautiful uh, zoo that's free, and uh, they have a beautiful lodge. And, and if you wanted to have brunch, uh, the food is great. So, um, you know, if you want to check out the Appalachian Trail, come on up. And, uh, you know, many of the hikers who get to us, who started in Georgia, you know, the, the they're serious about it because they're two thirds of the way there and they only got a third to go to get to Maine. And if you started in Georgia, you've walked through all these States and you got to New York. And another thing that I, that, you know, I'm always questioning the Appalachian trail hikers and how they, what they think of the trail. A lot of hikers are impressed by the trail going through new jersey and new york state they say it's absolutely beautiful not that the whole trail isn't beautiful but they didn't expect it to be so nice coming through new york and new jersey we got some beautiful sections of trail going through faunstock park uh you know over oh, oh, harriman state park you know up up through us here uh the, the nature conservancy i mean this is some beautiful wilderness uh that, that you can really enjoy um and, 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 and it's one of the most popular hiking trails in the world. You know, I, I interview a lot of people that, you know, are real hikers. And, you know, you got the Pacific Crest Trail. And the problem with the Pacific Crest Trail is that it goes to a lot of dry locations and you have a tough time finding water. But, you know, there is a, there's a support group in place like us and, and, and many other areas along the trail. And, you know, here at the Garden Center, we have a couple of events during the year. We have trail days. And we have Trail Magic Day, okay? So what is Trail Magic? Trail Magic, if you're hiking the Appalachian Trail in a summer like uh, we're going to have in the next uh, couple weeks where you're borderline dehydrated, you don't have any water, and you come up on, let's say, Westover Road or many of these uh, roads that that it crosses, and you find five gallons of water along the trail, that's called Trail Magic. Now what we do here at Native Landscapes is we take it to another level. I can tell you a story about how uh, you, you know. You got to make it quick, Pete. All right, in the morning. You got another we minute make, or so. Okay, in the morning we 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 have a barbecue. Uh, I I do bacon, egg, and cheeses, and I do hamburgers in the afternoon. And I had one hiker come through a couple of years ago, crying. I says, "Is everything okay?" He goes, "Yeah, I could smell the bacon a half a mile away." <laughs> so you yeah. know they really appreciate. You know the support group that's with them and uh you know i just i'm I'm very honored to be on the trail and it's a you know it's a great walk for anybody who wants to get out here in the woods and and, and hike some beautiful and 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 there's a
0: wide range of things there's a a boardwalk over a swamp near you and then uh people can go right into the deep woods so they get the full range they go by nuclear lake which uh was the site of a, a nuclear disaster some years ago so it's historic as well And that's just in our area. Uh, Pete, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. And I thank you so much for being with us today because uh, you really give us some interesting uh, information that is uh, hard to come by under normal circumstances. Pete Murawski is a nurseryman and environmentalist, the owner of Native Landscapes Garden Center in Pauling, New York. That's in Dutchess County on Route 22. Thanks again, Pete. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you would like to hear more uh, of our shows, you can access our archive of over 500 interviews streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our shows at leonardlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org before I sign up today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We need all of our listeners who have the means to do so, to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org, or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique, in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's 212-209-2950. Without your help, there is absolutely no way that this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, can stay on the air. So why not make that call right now uh, in the name of London Lope at Lord, so we can keep bringing you the kind of programming you won't hear anywhere else. Again, the number to call is 212-209-2950, or you can go to give2wbai.org on the web. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support the station in the name of Leonard Lope at Large, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you can join us again tomorrow when political philosopher and professor of politics at Princeton University, Jan Werner Müller, will discuss his new book, Democracy Rules. We'll see you then.